Good morning, H2O family. Uh, thank you for joining in with us here this morning. Uh, my name is Trevor Gossett. I'm on staff here with H2O Church Cincinnati, and I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. Um, last week, we started a summer sermon series called Return and Rebuild, where we're going to be going through the Old Testament books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. Uh, and the Old Testament does a really good job of, of revealing a lot of the heart and a lot of the character of God. Uh, so I'm excited for everything that he's going to be teaching us through this series, um, including here this morning. Um, and with that said, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you really thought you knew something, but it turns out you didn't really know it that well after all? Um, for me, uh, my freshman year of college, uh, I, I was studying pre-med, and my, the first chemistry exam that I had, when I took that, I thought I just, I thought I knew everything. I thought I did really well, maybe, maybe even aced it. And, but when I got the grade back, I, I got like a 60. I got like a 65, some, something like that. Um, so you know, I thought I thought I knew it well, but it turns out I didn't. Um, and then again in college, when I, when I came uh, to college. Uh, I, I was a three-sport athlete in high school. I played football, basketball, and baseball. Uh, and a lot of my friends uh, in college, uh, they were really into soccer. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I've been around sports my whole life. I'll be able to pick it up. Um, so I went out, played with them, and it turns out that uh, I'm not good at soccer. And still to this day, I'm, I'm really bad, uh, even though originally I thought I would be at least okay. Um, and the reason I, I bring this up this morning is uh, in, in the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today, um, we're going to see some really like deep and foundational truths um, uh, when it comes to, to following Jesus and, and being in relationship with God. And, and I really believe um, that, the, that the Lord just wants us to, to be firm in, in our knowledge of this. And it makes me think of uh, a scripture in 2 Peter 1 that I want to read to you here. Uh, where the Apostle Peter writes, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. Um, so this morning I want to be faithful to this. You know, I want us to be firm in, in our knowledge um, of these, these deep truths that the Lord wants to um, press into our hearts this morning. Uh, and before we go any further, uh, I would just love it if you could uh, bow your heads in prayer with me, wherever you may be. God, we just, we love you so much. God, thank you for your presence with us. God, even though we may currently be separated physically, God, that we can be unified through your spirit. Um, and God, thank you that you love to be with us. And Lord, I pray this morning you would open our hearts. God, I pray that the, the words that I say, God, would be your words. God, let everything that is of you penetrate our hearts and change us and grow us. God, let anything that is not of you just fall to the floor. And all for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the Old Testament isn't quite as straightforward as some of our scriptures in the New Testament are, but it's still really, really good. 
And this morning we're going to be looking into the book of Ezra and to, and to help you see kind of the, the full picture um, of what's going on in Ezra. It's important that you know uh, some of the context um, and some of the background that was happening uh, before this book of Ezra was written. Uh, and Grant hit on this really well last weekend, but uh, in case you need a refresher, here it is again. So in the Old Testament, we see these people called the Israelites. And the Israelites are, are really just the, the people of God. Uh, the modern day equivalent would be Christians. Um, and these Old Testament Israelites, uh, they lived in a city called Jerusalem. Um, and within the walls of Jerusalem, um, there was this awesome temple. Um, the, the Bible tells us this, this temple was just absolutely spectacular, absolutely stunning, uh, made with the best material uh, that could possibly be used um, in, in this time. And, and this temple was really the, the central place of worship for the Israelites. So again, just a little refresher. Israelites, the people of God, living in Jerusalem, and they have this awesome temple um, where, where they worship God. And the, temp the temple itself is very glorifying to God. But the problem was the Israelites and the way that they were living their lives was not glorifying to God at all. In fact, they were living in, in direct opposition and direct rebellion against God because their lives were full of sin. And as a direct result of the unrepentant sins of the Israelites, uh, these people called the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and just absolutely ransacked everything. Um, they, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed this once stunning and beautiful temple. And they actually carried off many of the Israelites into captivity um, for, for 70 years. And this was also communicating separation from God for the Israelites there. And, and all of this happened because the Israelites were living in sin and rebellion against God. Um, so yeah, as you can see, you know, there was just a lot of crazy stuff happening um, leading up to this, this book of Ezra. Um, and I want to pause here um, and, and really point out a significant truth. Um, you see, the scriptures tell us that God himself actually sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem um, to, to, to destroy uh, the city and to destroy the temple. Um, and, and it kind of surprises you at first. It seems a little harsh. But actually, this is really a really beautiful display of a form of God's love. See, in allowing this to happen to the Israelites, God was seeking to prove a point to the Israelites and to us today. And that point is this. For our own good and for God's glory, we are to take sin seriously. For our own good and for God's glory, we are to take sin seriously. And this word sin, it's a term that, that comes from the sport of archery. And it just means to, to miss the mark, to miss the target. Uh, and sin in this context mean, means to miss the mark uh, when it comes to the perfect and totally righteous life that God originally designed us uh, to live. And sin is just disobedience uh, and rebellion, opposition against God and His commands. And I want to take us to Genesis 2, to one of the first commands that God ever gave to mankind. And it's Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. It'll be up on the screen. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
You see, all of God's commands have a good and perfect reason behind them. God doesn't just give commands just for the sake of giving them. They have reason to them. And here in Genesis 2, we see that God gave this command to mankind to protect them. He says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And maybe you can relate to this today. You Maybe personally, you have experienced some of this brokenness and emptiness and apathy and disappointment that sin has brought in your own life. And see, God passionately wants to pull you and to pull me away from sin, to pull us away from the brokenness of the world and the destruction of sin. It's because of this that throughout the Bible, we see clear and firm commands from God to repent of our sins and actually follow Jesus Christ. Uh, In Matthew 4, it says, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. You see, in these commands to repent from sin, they aren't meant to be these commands that just put us into a fearful state. Uh, or, or force us into obligation. Rather, these commands to repent from sin is God lovingly pulling us away from the brokenness and the destruction and the death of sin. So here in the Old Testament, God allowed the Israelites' temple and their city to be destroyed so that, so that they could see the danger and the death and the destruction of the sin. And, and I believe that God's hope was that the Israelites would see this and make this connection and be faithful to repentance. So you can see here, it was for their own good. And God is making this same plea to you and to me today in His command to repent. Because if we don't take sin seriously, then on the heart level, we are going to experience the same kind of destruction and and, and pain and darkness that the Israelites experienced. And even if you feel conviction about your sin, that, that tug, that pull on your heart. For years, I ran away from conviction. But now I know that's God just pulling you closer to Him and pulling you into the fullness of life that He wants to give you. So with that said, let's dive into the book of Ezra. And we're going to be focusing in specifically on Ezra 3, starting with the first three verses. So Ezra 3, 1 through 3. When the seventh month came... And the Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shelitel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of, of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. So this is huge. In this first line of this passage, it says that the Israelites assembled together as one in Jerusalem. And remember that context that I gave you. The the Israelites originally lived in Jerusalem and had this awesome temple that they worshipped God in. But because of their sin, because of their rebellion, the city was ransacked. The city was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Israelites were carried off. 
But here in Ezra 3, right at the beginning, we see that the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem. And this is huge. In this, we see that the Israelites have been restored and they've been redeemed. And going back a couple chapters um, to chapter 1, and, and Grant hit on this a little bit last week, um, we see that it was actually God Himself, the Lord God Almighty, that moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make this proclamation throughout uh, his realm. And, and this realm is, is where uh, the Israelites were in captivity. Uh, and in this God-inspired proclamation, the king of Persia says, Let the Israelites go. Let them go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord so that, they can be, so that He can be worshipped by them. And not only that, but this proclamation also commanded all the non-Israelite people to give the Israelites all these treasures, all these good things, all these offerings that were taken from them um, when Jerusalem was attacked. So literally in one moment, at the snap of a finger, the Israelites go from being captives to being free. And they gain a ton of treasures from those who have held them captive for 70 years. And these two things don't just happen naturally. You know, it is so abundantly clear that it was the Lord God Himself that was behind all of this. Only God was able to restore the Israelites. Only God was able to bring them back to Jerusalem. And He did. And, and ladies and gentlemen, this is so incredible that, that God would even do such a thing. And to show you why, I, I want to look at Ezekiel 16 this morning. And this is going to be a, little, a bit of a long passage uh, that I want us to look at, but, but it's an incredible passage of Scripture uh, altogether. Uh, and this is God actually speaking to the Israelites, speaking to the same people um, that we've already been talking about this morning. So it's Ezekiel 16, 4 through 19. And this is what the Lord says. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. From the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breast had formed and your hair had grown in, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you, and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress, and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen, and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms, and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, 
because the splendor I gave in you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is a very powerful and, and very sobering passage of Scripture. In the first part of this passage, it's so clear that the Lord loves to love the Israelites. He's going on and on about how He's, he's clothing them with these fine garments, these costly garments, giving them the best food, a, a crown on their head. You can just tell that He loves to love the Israelites. And it just, as I read this, it, it just touches my heart so much and, and makes my spirit want to leap for joy. But then about halfway through the passage, we see a huge turn of events. See, the Israelites take all these awesome gifts that the Lord had given to them. All of this love that the Lord had given to them. And they slapped them in the face with it. And, and they just went off and started living lives their own way. They just went off and, and did their own thing. Get, gave themselves over to sin. Gave themselves over to the world without any care of God. And I don't know about you, but, but my heart drops when I read through this second half of the passage. And then it's followed by, by somewhat of a sting. As I realize that we are guilty of doing the exact same thing. And, and this passage is not only talking about the Israelites. It describes us as well. See, in love, God uh, put us here in this awesome creation and gave us this beautiful gift of free will so we could uh, freely enjoy His creation. And every one of us in our sins have chosen to slap God in the face with that free will. We've gone, we've given ourselves over to, to selfishness. We've given ourselves over to the world and to sin. And through this sin, we, we become enemies of God. We told God that, that we hated Him by sinning. But how could we do such a thing when all He did was love us? All He did was care for us, adorn us, and watch over us. This really sheds a whole new light on sin, doesn't it? How could we have done such a thing to God? We find another example um, of, of this concept of what we've done to God in the New Testament. It's in James 4, verses 4 through 6. This is what the scriptures say. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hostility against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us? See, what this passage of Scripture is communicating is that when we sin against God, that we're committing adultery against Him, 
that we're cheating on our love relationship with Him. Just as a husband or a wife um, would, would be unfaithful and cheat on their spouse. He, I got married in, in November to my, to my beautiful wife, Susie. And, and just the thought of, of Susie cheating on me, I, I can already just feel the, the pain, the heartbreak. It just absolutely just knocks the breath out of me. But this is the exact same thing that our sins do to God. Our sins cut God to the heart. Our sins break God's heart. And I'm not over-exaggerating this. This is, this is all coming straight from God's Word. And I pray right now, we wouldn't just look at sin passively. We, we wouldn't just look at sin as, as a bad habit. I pray that we would come to absolutely hate sin at the thought of what our sin does to God. And I pray that, that the Holy Spirit and God Himself would stir up a godly sorrow for sin in our hearts. This, this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But in light of these passages uh, from Ezekiel 16 and, and James 4 that I've read to you so far, I actually want to direct your attention to the very last verse of Ezekiel 16. Um, and again, this is God speaking to the Israelites and to us today. So it's Ezekiel 16, verse 63. The Lord speaking, Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed, and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I make atonement for you, for all you have done. You see, this word atonement, uh, it just means payment. So in other words, in this last verse of Ezekiel 16, God is saying, when I pay the debt for all you have done, when I pay the penalty for what you have done, see, when we were cheating on God, when, when we rejected God, when we took the good things that God gave us, slapped Him in the face with it, and ran off and did our own thing, even when we deserved the just punishment of death because of our sin. God chose to redeem us, and God chose to restore us. More than that, God chose to bring us back to Himself. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. So this means that, that the payment or the consequence of sin is death. And we saw God say something very similar to mankind uh, in the passage from Genesis 2 we read earlier. He, because of our sin, a living being has to die. The price of sin is death. So in verses 2 and 3 of Ezra chapter 3, um, we see that God brought back the ancient Israelites to Jerusalem so that they could offer up burnt offerings to God before the reconstruction of their temple was even started. And these burnt offerings represented death and, and the shedding of blood that was necessary for sin because these burnt offerings would have been an animal that was slain for the sins of the people. And God gave the Israelites a chance to offer up these burnt offerings so that the Israelites themselves would not have to experience the eternal death and eternal separation from God due to their sin. And it was important that this started before the reconstruction of the temple. Because in order to give worship to God that truly honors Him and truly pleases Him, our sins have to be covered. 
and our sins have to be paid for. So this is why the burnt offerings came first. And these burnt offerings were, were part of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant laws. So we don't have to worry about them anymore today. And the reason that we don't have to offer up these burnt sacrifices like the Israelites did is because that our offer of atonement, our offer of reconciliation to God has a name. Jesus Christ. See, even while we were cheating on God, even when we rejected God, even when we dishonored Him so much, He responded to us with love and with faithfulness. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, um, it, it speaks of Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, we don't deserve any good thing from God because of our sin. But God, because He loves us so much and because He is so faithful, God gave us everything. He gave us heaven's very best. The King of heaven Himself, Jesus Christ. God said, I know what you have done, but I'll take your place. I'll take the punishment that you deserve. And this is the foundation of all of Christianity. This is the gospel. We never graduate from this truth. God wants a personal relationship with you. And He made it possible for that to happen through the message of the gospel. And if God didn't want a personal relationship with you, then the gospel never would have happened. Nobody forced God to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. God chose to because He loves us. God passionately, deeply wants a personal relationship with you, no matter what. And, and brothers and sisters, your sins, your past, it doesn't intimidate God. God loves you and God wants you. And Jesus Christ has died and rose again for you. This is the magnitude of God's love. It's incredible and it's unfathomable, but it's true. And all of this gives you some context and, and some depth as to just how amazing it is that God initiated restoration, that He initiated redemption for the Israelites by, by bringing them back to Jerusalem, and how amazing the gospel of Jesus Christ is for us today. So let's move on to the next section we're going to be looking at from Ezra 3. It's going to be Ezra 3, verses 8 and 9. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shelitel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people 
the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinnadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of the Lord. So you see, when the Israelites came back to Jerusalem after their exile, they had a responsibility to actively start rebuilding the temple um, once those burnt offerings had resumed. Uh, because a new temple wasn't just going to drop out of the sky for them. They had this responsibility. See, God initiated the restoration, and He gave the Israelites everything they needed um, to really experience and to really uh, fulfill that restoration. Um, but the people still had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to diligently work on rebuilding this temple, um, just as I said. Um, and if they, they rebuilt the temple um, of the Lord, then they would be able to joyfully worship God and, um, and, and encounter God again. And God gave the Israelites to the opportunity to control their own destiny here. Uh, because before God brought the Israelites back to Jerusalem, um, like I said, they were in captivity for, for 65 uh, to 70 years uh, underneath the Babylonians. And Psalm 137, uh, verses 1 through 4, really gives us some insight into the heart of the Israelites um, during their captivity. So Psalm 137, 1 through 4 says, Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? You see that, that before the restoration, you can really see here that, that the Israelites were experiencing just so much brokenness and, and, and emptiness. And, and remember, these were real people. The, the people in the Bible, they, they weren't just these made-up characters. These are real people just like you and I. And you can imagine just how much uh, insecurity, how much fear and worry and anxiety they, they probably felt being captives in, in this foreign land. So that's why this is so awesome that when, when God brings them back to Jerusalem, He gives them, gives them this opportunity to start rebuilding the temple. And, and, and if they rebuild this temple, that they'll start to experience the fruit, the, the good fruit of the Lord again. And just like the Israelites, we also have an opportunity um, to, to really cultivate deep personal intimacy with Jesus. We have this, this opportunity uh, to, to participate in the restoration and the redemption that the Lord has made available to us. See, John 3.16 tells us that in love, God gave His one and only Son up on the cross. That whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. So even here we see that each of us has a personal responsibility to actively believe and accept this truth. That Jesus died for us and rose again. And it is only when we personally believe and accept this truth that we receive eternal restoration and eternal redemption through Christ. 
And maybe you're listening to this today um, and, and you've never uh, accepted this truth. You've never put your faith, put your trust in this truth. And, and here and now, before I go any further, I want to give you that opportunity. If Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are all guilty of sin. But just as I've, I've shared multiple times in this sermon already, Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and died for you, and rose again, defeating death and defeating sin, that if you put your faith, your trust in Him, that you will be eternally saved and eternally forgiven. And if you want to um, receive that truth, if you want to put your faith in that truth, um, I ask you in your heart to, to pray this prayer with me. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that, that I have fallen short of perfection. But God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sin so that I do not have to receive that punishment. God, I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and I commit my life to you, Lord, um, forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And if, if you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, um, all, all of us here at H2O and, and, and all Christians uh, are, are rejoicing with you, um, that, that you have you've just received uh, eternal salvation. You have received Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And this doesn't mean you can just go off and, and live life however you want. And Jesus is Savior and He is Lord. So we have this, um, this, this call to, to now follow Jesus and, and obey Him. So if you just received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or, or if you're hearing this today and you've been following Jesus, um, you've been saved for a while, I, I want to encourage you that the, this responsibility and, and again, this, this opportunity doesn't just stop at faith and, and acceptance of Jesus. It, it's not the finish line, that's just the starting line. In God's Word, uh, Colossians 2, 6-7 through says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See, in, in the restoration and redemption that God has made available to us, there is so much that He wants to bless you with. Um, just look at these verses of Scripture uh, that will be up on the screen for you. In 1 Peter, God's Word says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And in John 10.10, 10, Jesus is speaking. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. And in Galatians 5, God's Word said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. In Isaiah 26, speaking of God, says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. 
You see, there's so much peace and joy and freedom and life and, and forgiveness that's found in an active relationship with Jesus Christ. But these good fruits from the Lord, they, they aren't just given to you automatically. Rather, they, they are products of uh, a deeply and actively cultivated relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. The devil doesn't have to kill you to defeat you. If the devil can distract you, then he's done his job well. See, Christians are meant to be people in this life that are just overflowing with, with abundant life and joy and peace, it's just to, to radiate off of them. Um, even uh, in, in Matthew, uh, Jesus speaks of his followers that they would be uh, the light of the world and the salt of the earth, that light would just radiate out of them. And see, in order to receive and experience these blessings, we have to live life on purpose. We have to live life with intentionality as we have this opportunity to actively cultivate our personal relationship with Jesus. Just listen to what Jesus has to say in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, in the beginning of this passage, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If we come to Jesus, we will find this rest, this peace, this acceptance, and this fullness. But we have to come to Him in order to experience these fruits. And if we, and if we don't actively work towards this, if we don't actively and, and daily cultivate this relationship with Jesus, then we're going to drift. Because of the broken state of our flesh, the broken state of this world, it is our natural tendency to drift away from God to drift away from His Word, to drift away from the restoration and the redemption that He wants to bring us. And this is why we have to live life on purpose. We have to take hold of our life and have that control. And if we don't fill our heart, if we don't fill our minds with the things of God and the truth of God, other things will fill our minds. Other things will fill our hearts. And those are going to be the things of the world the things of sin, the things of selfishness. So it's so important that we take in God's truth and that we meditate on God's truth often. And I know that you may be hearing this and, and thinking to yourself, it's like, okay, what does it mean? What does it look like to cultivate this personal intimacy with Jesus? That's a great question, so I'm glad you asked. Um, and to cultivate this personal intimacy with Jesus, God has given to us what, what I like to call uh, the fundamentals. Uh, and they're really just like the, the spiritual disciplines. Uh, but just, just think in, in the, the sport of basketball, you know, you, you have these fundamentals. You know, being able to shoot, being able to pass, being able to dribble. Um, in, in music, we have these fundamentals uh, of chords and, and pitch uh, and, and scale and rhythm. You see, it's, it's these basic things that when they come together, um, that, that we, we see just this, this awesome display of talent, that this, this awesome product 
And it's the same thing with these fundamentals. Um, and, and, and these fundamentals are, are tools that God has gifted us with to use, to connect with Him, and, and to, to communicate with Him, to spend quality time with Him. Just think, if I, if I was married in November, as, as I said I was, um, and on that day, I, I said I do, that, that Susie, I, Susie, I will marry you, but then never spoke to her again, how good do you think our relationship would be? It, it wouldn't be good at all. You know, but, but rather, you know, Susie, Susie and I are spending quality time together daily. Susie and I are, are in open and clear communication daily. And, and this same concept applies to our relationship with God. So the first of these fundamentals um, is just a devotion to the Bible, a devotion to God's Word. And a healthy relationship with God requires a relationship with the Bible. Jesus in Matthew 4.4 4 says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is saying, as important as eating is, as important as drinking water, as important as oxygen, you know, having this, this spiritual food, the Word of God. And if you're intimidated by devoting yourself uh, to reading the Scripture, uh, here's just some tips for you. Intentionally schedule it in. Even if that starts out as five to ten minutes a day, just intentionally schedule that in. Make it a priority in that way. If you don't know where to start, go to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read about your Savior. Read about your King that loves you so much. Uh, there, there was a research study conducted um, of 40,000 people from the ages of 8 to the age of 80. Um, and in this study, it was looking at this connection between the amount of time people spent in God's Word per week and, and life change that was happening uh, in, in their lives. I wanted to share with you uh, the findings from their research. So for those people who spent time in God's Word once a week, which uh, could include on Sunday morning, there was no change in their life. For those people who spent time in the Word twice a week, there was no change in their life. Three times a week, there started to be a little change. There started to be something. Four times a week or more that people were spending uh, personal time with God in His Scriptures, there was, it just shot off the charts. There was a monumental spike in, in the life change. And I even want to, want to share with you uh, this specific life change that, that they saw. So feelings of loneliness, and this is all people um, in that bracket of uh, people spending time with God and His Word four, four times a week or more. So these people, feelings of loneliness dropped 30%. Bitterness in relationships, whether that be with a spouse or a friend, dropped 40%. Anger dropped 32%. Alcoholism dropped 50%. Feelings of being spiritually stagnant or, or spiritually uh, stuck dropped 60%. Addiction to pornography dropped 61%. Sharing your faith jumped 200%. And actively discipling others jumped 230%. And all this change happened 
because they had an active relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll let God's word and I'll let these stats speak for themselves. There's, all this is available for you in God's word. Well, will you take it? Some of these other fundamentals uh, include prayer. You're having this two-way dialogue with God. God speaks to us through His Word. We speak back to Him. We praise Him. Uh, reflection and processing. Um, for me, I'm definitely an external processor. So I have to journal things in this way um, to, to process through things. Musical praise and worship. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Um, safely immersing ourselves into nature. Um, into God's creation and really just thanking Him and acknowledging Him that He designed it and that He created it. Taking a, a Sabbath day's rest. Um, and and there, there's so, so much more in this. Um, but relatively often, I, I hear people speaking about these fundamentals as if they were like routines that God expects us to do. Or that these fundamentals are, are marks of a good Christian, so I, I guess I just better do them. But, but this isn't the perspective that God wants, wants us to have of these tools that He's given us. Uh, in Mark 2.27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, I, I love this quote from Jesus because what He's getting at is that, that these, these fundamentals... These gifts from God to us, they are for our good. They're not just demanded of us. They are freely given to us as gifts. And this changes it from a duty that you have to do to a delight that you get to do, a pleasure. And this is important too because God wants what He paid for. Through the excruciating death of Jesus on the cross, His resurrection, God has paid for your restoration, here and now and forever. But don't just wait for after this life is over. Jesus came to give you abundant life now. And God wants what He paid for. God wants to see you uh, thrive in this restoration. In John 5, Jesus says that He is pleased to give life to us. So go run into the arms of Jesus. Run into His Word. Run into prayer. And just enjoy it. Love it. Love Him. And, and brothers and sisters, don't let shame, don't let distractions, don't let busyness, don't let the enemy, don't let anything keep you from thriving in God's Word and, and, and all these other fundamentals that He's given us. So, uh, looking back into, the, into chapter 3 of the book of Ezra, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11 now. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. See, there's a deep truth in this passage that I think we tend to get mixed up here in America. See, the restoration, the Bible, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of this creation, it's for God and His glory. It's not about us. This is all His story, His word, His creation, His people. It's all about God. And brothers and sisters, this isn't a burden. This is a relief. It's all about God. And God has invited us into His story. One of the scriptures um, that I've been dwelling on personally over the last month or so is Romans 11.36. It says this, For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. This, this scripture makes it so clear that everything is, is for God. It's from Him. It's through Him. It's for Him. All things. Not just uh, an hour a day or an hour on Sundays. All time. 24-7, 365, every friendship, relationship, everything you have, everything you've experienced. It's all for God. And in Ezra 3.11, we see that the primary focus of the worship of the people wasn't the restoration. They weren't praising the temple. They weren't praising the gift. They were praising the giver. Look at what they say in Ezra 3.11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. Just think, if, if my wife Susie gave me a gift... I wouldn't just focus on that gift and thank that gift for being a gift. It just doesn't make sense. And, and you can imagine that if I did that, that would even that would hurt my wife. You know, rather, I, I would give thanks and appreciation and love to my wife for that gift. And let this be the same concept when it comes to God. After Jesus fed the 5,000 uh, in the Gospel of John, they came and searched for Him. And when they found him, um, they, Jesus gave them this response. He said, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but, beca- but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And what he's getting at is like, you just want what you can get from me. You don't want me. Brothers and sisters, I pray that the longing of our hearts, and our desire, our hunger, our thirst would be Christ Jesus himself. We would seek His face and not just His hands. And we would give Him the honor and the worship that He so rightly deserves. And I want to even show you this in in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. Uh, It's 1 Peter 2 verses 9 through 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him, who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This makes it clear it's all about Him. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God has transformed our lives. God has saved us so that we may declare the praises of Him who called, who called us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. It's about Him. Yet He's given us so much love, so much restoration, even when we try to make it about us. 
And brothers and sisters, as this message comes to a close, let's be a people that stand in awe of the incredible and incomprehensible love of God. And as we stand in awe of the love of God, I pray that we would have the same response as the Apostle Paul, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In our lives um, here, here on earth, let's be a people that live for God and His glory, not for ourselves. Let's be a people that go and spend that quality time with Him in the fundamentals, in the Bible, in prayer, in musical praise and worship, enjoying that time and falling in love with our Creator, falling in love with our Savior, falling in love with our King. And I promise you that there will be so much life, so much peace in that. But the important thing is, is the giver, not just the gift. Let's pray. Father God, we stand in all of you today. God, let this truth of your love, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of these awesome and life-giving fundamentals that you've given us, let this be a delight to our hearts. Lord, teach us not to work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which Jesus will give us. Lord, soften our hearts to this truth. Let us be a people that every day we stand in awe and amazement of this truth. And Lord, let us be a people that goes and shares this truth with our friends, our family, all those around us, so that those around us too may take part in this amazing restoration and redemption that you've made possible for us, Lord. Lord, we receive Jesus. Lord, we receive you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.